I was in my 40s when I finally began turning my life around from one of a career criminal to a law-abiding citizen. It hasn't been easy, and it has been a very long road. You know, a lot of people ask me these days if I'm a good guy. I wouldn't say that. I'd say I'm a better person than I used to be, and I'd say I work hard every day to be a better person. Sometimes I fail, but most of the time, I'm successful. I'm successful because I made a conscious decision to go legal, to embrace a way of life that was, frankly, foreign to me, even frightening to me. But it was a way of life that I recognized to be healthy and which would help people instead of hurt them. And I'm only able to do that because enough people and groups out there gave me a chance to use the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect people against the type of person that I used to be. Without the help of those people, I'd likely be back in prison today. So I'm indebted to many people, and the only way I can think of to repay them is by showing that they didn't have unfounded faith in me. So I work hard every day to be a better person than I was the day before. With this change of lifestyle comes a change in the types of people that I call friends and associates. Where before those friends and associates were some of the most notorious cyber criminals on the face of the planet, today those friends and associates are some of the most important law enforcement officials, security professionals, and consumer advocates in the world. Recently, I sat down with Doug Shadell. Washington State Director of AARP, to give a glimpse of what the second season of the Anglerfish podcast will look like. Doug is one of those people who works tirelessly to protect people against being victimized. His entire career has centered around that work. In this episode, Doug and I discuss victims. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. Today I'm here with Doug Shadell, AARP Super Guru. <laughs> we didn't go that far, but thanks, thanks for inviting me. You have been instrumental in making sure that I have been a legal person from the article you wrote for the magazine. So why don't you tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and just the outstanding work that AARP does. Well, I've worked for AARP for over 20 years, and before that I was an investigator with the state attorney general's office. How long were you an investigator? 14 years. Oh, wow. The reason I 
wanted to come to AERP was the AG's office and all of law enforcement does great work, but I got tired of chasing after swindlers and never <laughs> catching them. Right. It got really frustrating. I worked on a case, one of my last cases. I spent a year living in a hotel in Vancouver, Washington with this fraudulent mortgage broker. We brought charges against him, and a week later, we moved to Portland, Oregon, started a new company. And I'm like, you know, that's the so best that's... I can do. And we moved him 10 miles. So the only thing he needed to do was just close up shop, move 10 miles down the street, and start so a new name. a different jurisdiction, different oh, state. Wow. That's just one example. And right. you, you know, I'm not the only one who said this. Law enforcement, they do a the great job. But I wanted to sort of get to the victim or get to the consumer before sure. the scammer does. And that's been the last 20 years at AERP. AERP has a large membership. We have a nice platform with things like the magazine, The Bulletin, which you were on the cover of. <laughs> on the cover of, um, luckily. <laughs> well, and I got to tell you, your description of the dark web, Brett, was one of the most read articles we've ever had in the Bulletin. So well, thank you, know, you for it, doing that. I'm not sure it was me so much as the writer. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then we took those same interviews with you and went out on the road with them, as you know, and because you were giving us a tour of here's what it's like to actually be on the dark web. Right. And people were just stunned and amazed by the amount of activity going on that nobody sees. And that's our goal is to just try and raise, not scare people, but raise their awareness so that the next time they go online, they have elevated consciousness about what's out there. And I'll say, you know, when you contacted me, I didn't really know much about AARP and the work they did. But coming in and visiting with you and then working with you on the article and everything, I'm just extremely, extremely impressed with the work that you do and the lengths that you go to to protect the common person out there. It's just, it's really impressive. Yeah, well, thanks. Well, and it's an ongoing battle. I mean, I'd like to think, as you know, the fraud has not exactly gone down in recent years. No, no, it's uh, not. And, you know, we, I don't, hopefully that's not because we're not doing a good job. Technology's driving a lot of it, which is why we're just obsessed with the more experts like you we can get who know that terrain in particular. The web, a lot of our folks, older folks, it's not their fault, but they still live in the analog world sure. in many cases. We would go with that content last year with you to a room and say, there's all this stuff on the dark web and protect your digital identity. And I would have people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I don't have to worry about any of this because I don't have a digital identity because oh, I don't own a computer. Oh, geez. Right? And I'm like, well, you know, I, the bad news is... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Do you have a, a bank account? Do you have anything? All of that is part of your... You know, and so there's this awareness raising that we're trying so, to... So, you know, I think I pointed at that out before is one of the main segments that is targeted by criminals are senior citizens. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's because they don't have that online presence like that. It's much easier to take over the identity, to defraud the person, and profit from a criminal point of view. Absolutely um, right. So, you know, right now I'm doing this podcast, which is basically the Brett Johnson story, the Shadow Crew story and everything. And I think I mentioned to you earlier, what, what I've been doing over the past year is when I end a presentation, I talk about the victims because it occurred to me that, okay, I've been up here laughing and, and joking and the audience has had a good time. I've scared the audience, but I've never mentioned the victims. So over the past year, I've been pretty adamant about talking about some of the victims that I've got and that I've had, and it's people that I knew, people I didn't know. And I thought with the work that you do, and I know you pretty well, I was like, you know, there's nobody better to talk about some of the victims that I've had and that victim impact with cybercrime than Doug Shadell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You haven't talked much about your victims, and if you want to throw that in here, I can give you sort of my take on it. Yeah. Many years ago, 
one of the starting points for our victim research, because we've done a lot of profiling of different kinds of victims over the years. Sure. And I was at a law enforcement conference, and we had just started this thing called a reverse boiler room. Back in the late 90s, law enforcement, especially in the Los Angeles area, would go in and they'd raid these boiler rooms in Orange County, and they'd seize all the information, including <laughs> the calling list they were sure. about to call. And somebody, wasn't my idea, got the bright idea, why don't we get all of law enforcement and the social working community into a room, and instead of the bad guys calling those lead lists, the mooch lists, right. the victim lists, we'll call them and we'll say, hey, your name was on a list, be careful. That means somebody's gonna call you, you should be extra vigilant. Which right? is an excellent idea. It is, and <laughs> we have one of those call centers here still operating today, 20 years later. But, so we, I went to this law enforcement conference and we were sort of bragging about, isn't this a clever idea? And there was a psychologist in the audience named Anthony Pradkanas who came up to me afterwards and he says, I love what you're doing about this. You're targeting information to the people who need it most. That's really great. But it had ever occurred to you that when you call somebody and tell them that they are a victim because they're on a victim list, that you might actually be making them more vulnerable because you're reinforcing their self-identity ah. as a victim. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I obviously have a lot to learn about this. And you know, we, I hadn't even thought of that. It's this sort of like, oh, I'm a victim. Yeah, I yeah. guess I should fall for it or something. And I don't know if we ever proved that that assertion was true, but we ended up working with Pratkanas, doing all kinds of coding of tapes and victim studies. And what I guess I'd like to start with is just what some of the myths are sure. about what people think, who they think the victims are. I've been at so many conferences where, you know, typically someone will stand up and say, all victims have two characteristics in common. They're greedy and they're stupid. Ah, uh, see, I would say the greedy. Yeah. I wouldn't say the stupid, but I would say the greedy. Typically, uh, depending on the scam that I was running. So I started out, my scams online were eBay scams, and I would post items that I didn't have, like cameras, laptops, things like that, and I would post it at about an 80 or 85% of retail price. That way, someone that was looking for a bargain, yeah. they would say, okay, I'm saving some money, I'll buy that. So the greed would get them at that point. Stupidity, I don't think it's stupidity. So I've got a couple of slides that I talk about fishing, and you know, fishing is 92% successful and everything else. And I say, this next slide says, because there is no patch for human stupidity. And I let the audience laugh about that. And then I say, you know, that's not really true. Because what you're dealing with is you're dealing with social engineers. It's got nothing to do with stupidity. It's got to do with an attacker understanding human intellect and the psychology enough to know how to manipulate yeah. you into giving up information. So I'm not sure it's stupidity, but I would say that it's greed. I wouldn't necessarily deny that. It's just the way it was asserted is sure. demeaning to a victim. Absolutely. And if nothing Absolutely. else, don't demean the victim. They should be supported. Well, I think you're right. I mean, if you tell someone, especially if they've got low self-esteem to begin with, you know, you're on a victim list. Your name has been circulated around all these call centers or these fraud centers on the planet as a mark. Right. Then that So person, it's inevitable, yeah. you know. But here's what we learned when we did some more research and we interviewed other folks who have done this for a living. For example, we did a survey with the FINRA Foundation, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, sure. several years ago about investment fraud victims. And we asked a series of victims and a series of non-victims the same set of questions. One of which was, here's a quiz, here's a financial literacy quiz. Well, you know what? The victims scored higher on the financial literacy quiz <laughs> than the non-victims. So where's your stupidity there? 
right? And what we've come to learn is that it's not about cognitive capacity. It's about your ability to monitor and control your emotion. Because sure. as you know, in social engineering, the foundational idea is to get people under the ether. Every single Always. con artist I've ever interviewed, including you, Always. has said, get them into some kind of an emotional state, either from fear right. or from excitement that you've won. And that, there's a lot of science behind this. There's a central approach to persuasion. Here's the facts, make a decision. And there's a peripheral. The peripheral is all emotion. And it doesn't require facts because they're not thinking with their cognition. They're thinking with the amygdala. You're absolutely the right. The emotion swamps the <laughs> cognition. But it has nothing to do with intellect. It has to do with your capacity to manage emotions. You're absolutely right. And that's one of the things. So as you're talking about that, it's hitting me that you're right about that. So it doesn't matter if you're looking at a single victim, just a consumer or someone in a call center or someone in a factory or a company you're trying to get to plug in a USB drive. You're relying on emotion. If I'm trying to defraud a company using social engineering, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, okay, what type of emotion do I need to trigger? Do I need to trigger some sort of flight emotion, some sort of curiosity. Emotion. What's an example of that? They're calling a company, you're trying to get their list of employees or something. What would you use? Like, what's an example of that? So an example of that would be like pretexting, for example. So what I would do is I would say, I'm going to call payroll in the hopes of trying to get them to send me their W-2s for all their employees. And I would say, okay, what I need to do is do enough recon to understand who the CEO, who would be making those calls. So I would call and I would be the authority figure. I need this now, no questions, send it. Why isn't it on my desk already? So you're posing as the I would pose as chief financial officer or somebody from HR or right. something? Somebody that would have an authority position and they would be in trouble. I would be trying to scare them, they would be demanding, no quarter given, no The emotion no kicks in? Absolutely, right, right. just do it, just do it. Yeah. If it were a thumb drive, what I would do is I would drop it in a parking lot, somebody's gonna pick it up, they're going to be curious enough about it to plug it in. Now, uh. once they plug it in, I need them to click on a file that's in there. So the file, I would say, maybe have, have it tagged as salaries, CEO salaries or employee salaries, something like that, to peg that curiosity emotion all of a sudden. Uh, so so uh, what does that do when you click on that thumb drive? Is it, it, install, infects, it infects the computer? It would infect the computer with malware, ransomware. If you're a government entity, it would maybe shut down the infrastructure within that company, any number of things like that. Jeez. So, and it's always, it's always the human that you're trying to get across to. So an attacker may spend potentially years trying to fight through or, or break through an industrial firewall, but why would he do that when the only thing he needs to do is peg the human on the other end of the firewall? Yeah. He gets the same access. There's one of the myths we've debunked, which is this is really about emotional manipulation. I can give you an example of a victim I just interviewed a month ago mm -hmm. who lives out here in Seattle. She's 88 years old. And I'm gonna, there's a point to, they're not all 88 years old because another myth is that they're all seniors. We'll sure. get to that in a minute. But this woman was, you know, lived for 30 years by herself, had no problems. She'd accumulated some wealth. Somebody calls her up last November and says, Publishers Clearinghouse, you've won the 3.7 million, or maybe it was $7.8 million. Right. And she doesn't believe him. And she call five times, six times. She finally says, well, what do I have to do? You only have to send $500 and then we'll give you your 17, you know, it's a giant amount of money. Sure. But this woman who obviously does have the onset of some kind of dementia, it's not detectable. I interviewed her for three hours. She was sharp as a tack. She was in my face. I could not detect any dementia 
But this woman sent them $850,000. $850,000. Over four months. She was taking $50,000 in cash out and wrapping it in magazines. I've heard stories of this, but I'd never heard it actually been done before. And I'm like, well, why were you doing that? Well, it was the IRS charge for the winnings. And oh, they always had a reason. They just, she got into a den of thieves in New Jersey who all had different roles and they just started scaring her. And a lot of the reason she kept doing it is throwing good money after bad. Sure. Once you're in it for you 20 grand, you're gonna, all you can think about is I'm losing the 20 grand if I don't give them right, another 20 right. grand. And they just drained. So the bank would actually give her $50,000 in cash at a time? Well, here's the crazy thing. I'm like, what bank would do that? And yeah. she goes, well, actually, I'm not gonna name the bank, but it's the bank I worked at for 40 years. Oh, dear Lord. So I oh, knew them Lord. and they knew me and I lied to them. And the callers would tell me the lies. Oh, I'm remodeling. I started remodeling. And then, oh, my God, somebody hit the sewer main. Right. I, I was listening to one of the former heads of Western Union, and he was talking about these fraudsters that are doing this kind of stuff. And he said that if the victim leaves the house, that there is nothing that can be done at that point. If the person actually leaves the house, that victim, they are going to send that money. Yeah. You may stop them at one Western Union office, but they're just going to go to another one at that point. Right. Well, and there's just also these psychological things we've learned from people like Anthony Pratt-Connis, for example, and Robert Cialdini's commitment and consistency, mm. right? You've committed right. to follow through to the end on this, on the front end, and we human beings, that creates pressure psychologically to sure. commit and follow through to be consistent. You're absolutely right. All kinds of experiments that show that. And I'm sure that with this woman, so you know, they're talking to her on the phone, they've groomed her. They didn't initially ask for all this money. They're sitting there telling her, you know, making oh. the rapport, everything else. And she's telling them, of course, you know, her whole life story. Yeah. My husband died 30 years ago, but I'm doing fine. I have this waterfront home. And they're that, just thinking, uh, oh my God, look at the assets we can That take. reminds me, I mentioned this to you earlier, but one of my victims, and it was a victim as, I guess it was the last, two months before I was arrested. She was a single parent, and what, what had happened was, Shadow Crew had been shut down. I had went through my stateside money, didn't have any money, and I needed money. So I started to resort to you know, desperate measures for criminals, and that was running counterfeit cashier's checks. I would find coin collections online, buy them COD, coin collections, bullion, diamonds, things like that, and I'd pay for them with a counterfeit cashier's check. Can I interrupt you? Why, sure. why did you go after coins, people with coin collections? Because it was easy enough to turn around. So even if they already graded coins, you could take them out of the packaging and you could send them off to be regraded. They were high value, easy to turn, easy to flip at coin dealers, everything else. So it didn't have to do with the fact that the type of person who would have a coin collection they're selling might somehow be more susceptible to your pitches? Not right? a thing. The only thing was the product only. I was okay. looking for products that were easy turnarounds. Yeah, got it. This one lady... She was a single parent. She had a coin collection. Her coin collection, I guess for 20 years, she had saved silver United States current coins. And she was selling this coin collection. I think she had like 70 pounds of silver. Like, like half dollars. Yeah, half dollars, like quarters, all this stuff. Right. She was selling it to put a roof on her house for her and her kids. So I ended up, I sent her an email on eBay that I was interested in it, that the only way that I would pay for it was through collect on delivery COD order. And initially, she was not wanting to do that. So what it took me to do was to get on the phone and talk to her over several days, actually over a couple of weeks. So I'd call her every couple of days, and we'd talk about the coin collection and how much I wanted it and you know, I, how I respected that she was trying to put a roof on her house for her and her family and everything else. 
finally she got to the point where she trusted me enough to send the coin collection out, FedEx, and I paid for it with a fraudulent cashier's check and ripped that lady off. Do you remember the amount? $7,500. Yeah. Was what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was $7,500. Did you ever, well, you're not going to have any more contact after that. Why would you? Once I got arrested, I was arrested within two months after that. And she filed a civil suit and she was reimbursed and everything. Oh. Because of the seizure of everything that happened. Before I forget, Brett, I would just want to go over one more myth, which is that all victims of fraud are seniors. Then they're not. They're not. You're absolutely not. I mean, you've seen that in the cyber world, but I just want to, that's another myth. You know what's interesting? I read this recently. It turns out that the number one demographic for victims is millennials right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It is for phishing. (laughs) I mean, there's a big Microsoft study that shows the 20 to 24-year-old male who has frequented a porn site. (laughs) And when you think about it, that makes sense because a (laughs) pop-up comes up. And it says you've got a virus. Yep. You already know you're on some <laughs> sketchy website. Right? Yeah, you're watching the illegal porn. Right. So. And you're sort of feeling, yeah, oh, God, I probably do have a virus, you know. So you're guilty. You're yeah. caught sometimes with your pants down. So to speak. Exactly. <laughs> so. you know. Right. Right. <laughs> if you zoom out from the fraud research profiling of victims, the thing we know pretty well is that who falls for a particular type of scam is dependent on the type of scam it is. I agree. I agree. Investment fraud victims are more likely to be men between the age of 46 and 60 who have higher than average income and higher than average financial literacy, right? And are more likely to be married. All the things you'd think would never be the profile of a victim, but that's who is falls for investment fraud. Contrary to that, on the other side, exactly equal and opposite, lottery and sweepstakes tend to be older people, tend to be women tend to be lower income, Fixed income lower education. They get that thing saying they've won $5 million and they think, I can, hallelujah, I can pay all my bills. I can, this is the one that just pisses me off yeah. more than anything else. Because I've been in so many homes of these people and they're just, I remember this woman in Maryland who's, you know, the Jamaicans got to her. And they were like threatening to burn her house down and all this, all this stuff. And she's just, and all of her family lives in this tiny house because they're sick man. and her daughter has cancer. And she's, these are not people who want to be driving around in a Cadillac with the right, wings. Right. They just want to get out of debt and pay for their doctor bills, you know? And it just, it's really, so there's the lottery one is the more, that's more the stereotype of what they think everybody's a victim. You know, Doug, I, I honestly, I never thought about that with lottery. It, it makes perfect sense, perfect yeah. sense. And I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. It's people on fixed income. They're just looking for a way out. Yeah. And, and somebody you've got calls a predator them. out there that's feeding on them. And the other, I wonder if you've seen this in your scanning of the environment, is we've seen a lot more appeals that are fear-based than Absolutely. promise of wealth-based. Absolutely. And I don't know what that is about the current environment, but you know, we never, it used to be enough to just say, hey, you've won $10 million and you get all the cooperation you'd ever want. Now and you've and got, still that works to a degree, it, but fear. Yeah. Well, and I don't mean to, you know, populate a particular kind of person, but it started with the Jamaicans and now others are doing this. Once they've got that person giving them some money, they will call you 60 times a day. Right. And threaten to burn. I have tapes where the guys, you want me to come and burn your house down? They have a picture uh, because they've got, you know, Google Maps. Sure. I'm looking at your house right now. I see a red pickup parked in front of there. We're going to have people come over to your house and hurt you. That these kinds of threats. And, and these poor people, they have no idea what's going no, on. No, they go, the guy must that. be down the street. Absolutely. If he can see my car. Man, it's oh really, man. It's really getting pretty nasty. We mentioned the willingness of a criminal to commit crime. It's one of the things I've, I've seen that uh, recently 
on some level, some of these guys, some of these cyber criminals like I used to be, they do have some degree of a moral compass. <laughs> you know, so, and the, the reason I say, say more that, about that, I'm interested in that. Well, the reason I say that, you know, I started this tax return identity theft thing. And Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a, that's a that's a that's a prideful thing. I mean, to that's say. still going. Yeah, it's still going. But uh, you know, the, the IRS has gotten really good with security. So it's, if yeah. you're a new guy looking to engage in that, you're going to starve to death. But what happens is, is usually when the government institutes security in one area, it becomes lax in another. So the lax area is social security accounts. It's very easy to go in and answer the KBA questions on someone's social security benefits account. Let that age for a couple of months. What and is then, KBA again? Uh, KBA is knowledge-based authentication. So the security questions. Oh right. You know, did you ever a, own a house at one thousand right. Main what Street? What color car do you have? Anything else like that? I see. Yeah. So it's easy enough to get the answers to those questions and answer those KBA questions. Go in and take over someone's social security account and then divert the social security benefits to a prepaid debit card or a bank account controlled by the criminal. Any number of things like that. But I mean, it, it's going on, but it's not going on with the numbers that you would expect it to go on. We're talking about some of these criminal groups online. For example, there was a site shut down two months ago. They had 1.1 million members. <laughs> so if, if you're looking at an easy target, Social Security right now is a pretty easy target. But it's not really being hit as hard as it should. And I, I credit that to these guys that are sitting there saying, you know, some of these people only make $800 a month, and I, I will go to hell, basically, if I, if I steal their $800. So it's not that they don't have more to steal. It's that if they lost that amount, it would be really catastrophic. Right. right. So I think that's, at least from my point of view, that's why I never did that. From my point of view, I was like, if there is a hell, that's where I'm going if I do something like oh, that. Oh, I see. And I think that, um, you know, I've put a lot of thought into that criminal mentality now that I'm a good guy, supposedly, right? But uh, Well, it's, it might be easier and morally more plausible or acceptable to hit an insurance company. Sure. Hit a bank. Sure. And that's that justification, because I was always big on justification. I did it for my family, wife, stripper girlfriend. I didn't defraud people. I only defrauded banks. You know, I always justified stuff like that. And, yeah. and even today, all these cyber criminals that are engaged in crime, they still do that justification. It's still that, that way across the board. You huh. know, at least I'm not like you. I'm not ripping someone off. So, I'm ripping a bank off. And this like is interesting because even though there's some subset probably of the criminal world that's socio, truly sociopathic, right. most of them are not. No, no. Most of them are not. That's a tiny subset, right? It is. It is. The, the real sociopaths. Right. You could look at me from the outside and before people actually got to know me and say, okay, he's obviously a sociopath. Yeah. But the truth of the matter, I was never a sociopath. I had to justify crimes. A sociopath doesn't worry about justifying. They don't need to. They don't need to. Right. <laughs> there is no conscience. Yeah. Right. And you're right. The actual number of sociopaths, even when I was in prison, I spent six years in prison. And I may have met five or six true sociopaths. The rest of them were not like that. They were people who justified, who just tried to get through their time. They regretted their actions. Now, that doesn't mean that, yeah, they regret their actions, but they're still going to get out and do the same thing again. Sure. Right? So that's the thing now is I spent a lot of time thinking about these victims that I've had. You know, I've, I've had, like, the woman that I stole her money for her roof. The E-Trade accounts that we used to cash out people's retirement accounts so we could profit two to $3,000 a pop. Yeah. You know, destroy people's retirement. Well, and then we haven't talked about the really arguably worst fraud out there right now. 
which is the romance scammers. Oh, geez. You know, they're not geez. stealing their money. They're stealing your money and your heart. Yeah. And I don't know if we want to talk about that, but we've interviewed lots of those victims who start out on, you know, Match.com or, you know, PlentyOfFish.com. Yep. I mean, I interviewed a guy who was one of the, he was in Lagos, Nigeria, and we interviewed him on, uh, I think it was on FaceTime or something. And he played both man and woman because at the time he had no a boy. Kidding. Well, he was only like 17. So he, so he could play both. And he was telling me how he thought men were way easier to pull the romance scam Of course on. they are. You know, just <laughs> how hard is this? You just post a picture of a beautiful woman. Yeah, and that's really all you need to do. <laughs> that's all you need. Um, I, I love her already. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when I worked for, uh, you know, I got arrested and I went to work for the Secret Service. And they had some of these romance scams. One of the guys... There were two that I remember pretty well. One of them owned one of those battery stores, you know, the Battery Plus stores. Mm -hmm. He owned one of those. He was on, it was matched, it was one of the dating sites. Yeah. And he hooks up with a girl that's supposedly in Africa, beautiful girl. And uh, he talks to her for, you know, two months, doesn't send any money over or anything else. Finally, at the end of two months, she's wanting to come stateside to visit him. So he sends her the money for the plane ticket, doesn't hear anything from her. Week or two goes by, still doesn't hear anything. He's, he's calling her, no answer. He's sending emails, no answer. Finally, he gets a call one day from her kidnapper. <laughs> They've kidnapped her and they want $40,000. Uh. What does he do? He sends them $40,000. He still doesn't hear from her. They contact again a week later. Well, we need more than that. We need $200,000. This guy sends over $400,000, <sighs> loses his business because of this, walks into the Secret Service after this has already happened, explains it to them, what can you guys do? And the answer is nothing. nothing. We can't do anything. Right. The other one was a preacher, another dating site, and he had taken out loans, mortgages, everything else to send to this girl. And of course, the girl was not a girl. <laughs> you know, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's um, Well, when we think sad. about this, what we've talked about earlier about the role of emotion in social engineering. Yeah. I asked this guy who's on that dating site, how many of the people you interacted with on the dating site were, you know, lonely, isolated, single? He goes, all of them. All of them. 100%. All of Talk them. Talk about a target-rich environment. If your goal is to get somebody who's emotionally vulnerable, right. a huge percentage of people on dating sites, that's why they're on the dating site. Absolutely. So it's very easy to get out of that central <laughs> processing of logical reasoning and into the emotion, and then, you know, away you go. You're already dealing with someone that they can't get out and find someone the traditional way, or what used to be the traditional way. So they're online, they're, they're somewhat desperate. Yeah. They're feeling bad about being online. They think it's a little weird to begin with. And what are they looking for? They're looking for love. Yeah. They and just want to be loved by somebody. And what's the sign that you're dealing with one of these con artists? There's this concept called love bombing. That's it. If somebody is within 15 minutes of meeting you saying, first of all, I want to take you <laughs> offline, but you are the most beautiful woman slash man I've ever seen That's in my a life. <laughs> love bombing. Well, what is love bombing's objective? To ratchet up, throttle up that's on the it. emotion. That's it. That's the that's whole it. point of it, right? And you then deal with someone that's not been told that, that that's looking for that. You're hearing, yeah, they're giving you exactly what you want to hear, that's which it. you were a master at when Absolutely. you were doing social engineering. Absolutely. So how? So one question back to you is like, so we established that most of these con artists are not necessarily sociopaths, but they have to have some level of empathy, right? To be able to read the situation. I mean, you had right right you have to be able to read you call it recon but what you're really doing is sort of 
It's another word for casing the joint or one guy described it as casing the mind of the victim to you look to. for the hot buttons. And you have to know it almost immediately. Yeah. You have to know almost immediately. Did you so, find that you just intuitively knew how to do that? Or yeah. did you learn over time to get better at it? And I think that's the way with most criminal social engineers, that they developed th that skill of being a social engineer as a child. All right, so with me, it happened because I was around two parents that one was extremely abusive, the other one was basically the enabler of the family. And as children, me and my sister both had to be able to read the adults in that situation immediately in order to survive. Ah. Okay, then later on, I used that skill to commit fraud, to be able to read other people quickly. I think that's, that's typically what happens from a criminal point of view, is, is there some, some instance or set of circumstances that instills that in the person of being able to read somebody like that. So you learned that of necessity to survive. Was that a more important skill you learned from that as by your own admission, dysfunctional family environment? Or was the modeling that your mother in fact was also doing these crimes something that, or was it both or you know what I mean? I think like, it's both. It was weird. Um, with me, it was like a, a switch was thrown at eight or nine and I was going through this magazine and they had this book club that had all these computer books. And I wanted these computer books. So I filled out the card, you know, and sent them in and they sent the books back and it, the bill for it was like $200. So my dad, he's looking at the bill and he's like, what did you do? And I'm like, I didn't know it was gonna cost money. <laughs> and, and he looks at me and he was like, well, don't worry about it. And I'm like, what do you mean don't worry about it? And he's like, Nah, they're not going to do anything. Don't worry about it. Well, that was almost like a switch was thrown for me right there. At that point, I'm like, well, hell, they're not going to do anything about it, so I can get cassettes, I want. <laughs> music, books, all this. So I started doing all this stuff. Uh. So that was part of it. Uh, my mom certainly, you know, I come from eastern Kentucky, and it's that mentality, especially with the males. The males are meant to help. Whatever the family does, the male child is supposed to assist with that. My sister didn't have to do that. So my sister didn't really ever really commit crime other than just that shoplifting when we were children. Mm -hmm. uh, me though, you know, I helped out with faking car accidents, stolen cars, benefit fraud, I mean, any number of things. So I grew up with that being modeled and participating in that at the same time. We, we talked a little bit about inside the mind of the criminal thing. And do you think that training, yeah, it made you a better criminal while you were doing it, but did it also inoculate you from other people trying to do it to you? No, 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 absolutely not. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was- uh, Say more about that. I was often scammed online. Really? But the thing was is that my mindset on that, other than the first real instance where I was scammed, out of that initial first fake driver's license that I ordered and I got really upset when the guy ripped me off. Uh -huh. After that, someone would rip me off and I would chalk it up as the price of doing business, is what I would do. And not only that, but running that entire group at that point, that shadow crew group, if someone came in and defrauded one of my members, what I would do is, is I would reimburse, I would personally reimburse the member that was the victim. But I would contact the person who had scammed that victim and try to bring them back in the fold with the idea of, okay, you were good enough to defraud one of my people so you must Show have some, some skill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but no, I was, I, I was defrauded many, many times. This is really many interesting times. because there's a couple other people I've interviewed who were, you know, taking millions of dollars. This one guy, Jim Vitale, who's passed away now, passed away about 10 years ago, said, 
he's looking for a phone buyer, somebody mm -hmm. who will buy over the phone. He goes, and I got to tell you, true confessions, I'm a phone buyer. Because <laughs> I'm looking for the same, we, in psychology, we call it the hedonic lift. Right, right, that right. That hedonic lift of, <laughs> I'm really excited. That's what you're looking for. Is that sure. And whether you're defrauding somebody or whether you're taking a risk and getting defrauded, it's all the same desire to, and I just wondered what your take was on no, that. No, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. It's it's you, that that's the a action. Nice you're you're addicted to the action, or you're addicted to the risk. No, absolutely. And the thing is, is when you start out, or when I started out breaking the law, scamming people, and doing cybercrime, identity theft, everything else. Initially, and I think most people like that are like that when they begin their criminal career. Initially, it's like a blanket. You just defraud whoever you can across the board because you need that money. But as you become a better criminal and you're making or stealing more money, you're able to, at that point, decide who you're going to defraud. And at that point is where this justification comes in. Not only that, but it's, it's not only the justification, it's also the, uh, the reward aspect at that point. Because before you were having to defraud everyone, now you can pick and choose, and I hate to say it, but now you can pick and choose and have fun with who you're defrauding. You can build these elaborate stories. For example, we had, uh, I had one guy, I taught him how to do eBay fraud. He was selling, I told him how to, how to put fake cameras online and sell them to people and everything else. So he put all these fake cameras online. I don't know, he pulled like $18,000, something like that, out of all these sales. And he was continuing to run that scam from the same eBay account as people were not receiving their products. Uh. So what does he do? He just starts to have fun with it. The people start to call him, and he's like, hey, man, uh, you know, we're right on the banks of the Mississippi. I don't know if you've seen the news yet or not, but our entire warehouse has flooded right now. So we will get your product out to you just as soon as possible. And he was, the people were buying this, but he was having fun. And that was one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I don't even like to talk about that because you shouldn't have fun victimizing somebody. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of that. There's a lot of this game playing. How much just, of it is your ego trying to outwit people? Oh, geez. I mean, a huge part of it is ego-driven, a huge part. Yeah. You've got somebody that's potentially a CEO or somebody that, uh, like my first victim, identity theft victim, was a guy named Stephen Schwecky who worked at ADP Payroll. He works at ADP to this day, all right, and stole his ID, ran bank accounts, ran checks through the accounts, everything else. And for me... It was this rush of, I've got this guy that he's a professional. I'm a college kid. He's a professional. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to defraud him. And he can't stop it. He can't do anything about it. And it becomes this game of, how much can I get by with before everything's locked down? When you're going through that, are you get, we talked about this hedonic, I don't use too many buzzwords, but sure. the hedonic lift of, does that give you a rise, that give you a lift? That's, that's Describe what it feels like to beat a CEO if you're a college kid. Is that, I mean, is it's, there it's a rush? A, oh, mean, it is. It's, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah. I mean, you uh, not only the CEO, but a company. So you find a company that you're able to steal laptops from or cell phones from or any number of things. And you're able to do that at will. And you know the company's got security, but it's useless against what you're doing to them. So what's the big rush is that there's a few times that you get that rush on if you're doing credit card orders. You get it when you, uh, when you first buy the numbers, the stolen credit card numbers, you're sitting there going, okay, how much money has this got? How much money's on these cards? And then you go to the site and you place the order. When the order goes through as, as completed, that's accepted, that's another rush at that point. 
Then there's another rush when you actually go to pick up the item off the drop address where you've had it delivered. You know, you see the actual box on the porch. You're like, yes. You know, you go and pick it up and you put it in the car. And then there's a final rush when you sell the item and you actually get cash in pocket from that item. So there's all these little adrenaline boosts all the way around. Not only that, but you go back to your criminal community and you brag about what uh -huh. you've done. And everyone at that point showers you with even more accolades. So it's, it's all the way around. This whole ego thing is a huge, huge player in that. Yeah, huge. yeah, yeah. Almost more so than the proceeds of the crime. It can be. Yeah. It can be. So what happens is that you get to the point when you first start, the proceeds are paramount. You have to eat, all right? But once you become a good enough criminal, you're absolutely right. You're already making money, so it's not really the proceeds anymore. Yeah. It's now, how much can I boost my ego? What can I do that gains the respect of every single person in my community? And then it, it feeds from there. Well, we bring it back to how can we help people avoid being victimized? I was in some ways exhilarated, but also disappointed to hear you say that you were victim. I've heard this before <laughs> because I was hoping that your criminal mindset would be the defense. No, 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 it's not necessarily. Uh, any, anyone can be a victim. That's the yeah. thing. I mean, it's, and you pointed that out. It's not just senior citizens, right? It's not just millennials. It depends on what the scam is and what type of emotional crux or avenue you're trying to get that yeah. person to fall into to be defrauded. With me, my first fall was when I was, uh, I think I was 17. It was the advanced fee loan scam. <laughs> saw it in the back. I was wanting a vehicle and saw this ad in the back of the newspaper, send $200 and it's advanced fee. And you know, after you get in line, it will give you a loan for a couple of thousand dollars at that point. I had no idea, so I fell for that. Huh? Then later on, it was the fake driver's license, and that was the need, that <laughs> emotional need. I was scared of being uh, flagged for money laundering. So out of fear, I'm acting and getting, sending somebody money for a fake driver's license. And then later on, it was greed-based. What type of product do you have? Let me buy that. Okay, you don't have the product, so I got ripped off on that. But for me, it was always the cost of doing business at that point is what it turned into. So how do we, it does beg the question of what, tools can we give? We've worked in this from many angles. Here are the persuasion tactics that are used. Here's the playbook, as well as we know it, of investment scammers, lottery scammers, and so forth. But is there a mindset that you have, yeah, you were taken, but you also, I doubt that's true now, or is it still true? No, I don't, I don't really get taken. I've not been taken in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Part of what we were talking about earlier is just, there are so many people who just don't think like the criminal does. Right. So they can't possibly imagine that somebody would put a fake camera on eBay. Sure. That's like the farthest, because in their world, and I've interviewed a lot of victims, especially like college professors. This is another part of the myth of stupidity. Right. I interviewed a guy who was a PhD in chemistry. He taught for, at Berkeley for 30 years, <laughs> and he lost everything, right? Oh, geez. I mean, he was investing in soft porn movies. Oh, geez. Right? Because oh, geez. he was lonely because his wife died and so of course, forth. Of course. Right? But he also said at one point, the thing is, I've been in a university environment my whole life, and everyone I deal with, I can trust. We don't <laughs> scam each other at a university. And so the farthest thing from my mind is that there would ever be anybody who would be so brazen Right. As to say, it, there really is no movie. And, and, and the 800 know, grand you gave me is in my pocket. You just couldn't believe <laughs> there it. There is no movie. You know? Well, I think that, I think maybe you're landing on something that's pretty important. It's important to have 
a view of the world that is not through rose-colored glasses. All right, so we go online, a lot of people go online, and they inherently trust the te technology. They trust those news stories. Oh, it's obviously true. It's on Facebook or it's on whatever news site it's on. It's got to be true. Yeah. So they never question that. They just accept it at face value. Yeah. Um, you know, they accept that the person that's on the dating site that's texting them is that beautiful blonde or that right. hunky man. So other than just sending a message, you can't trust anybody. How do we get that message through to people? You know, I was asked, uh, there was a guy, I forgot who asked me this. I was on WGN radio a couple weeks back. And the question was, is when will United States people, United States citizens, actually stand up and be worried about their privacy and take a proactive stance in cybersecurity? And my answer was, is that it's not going to happen until we have a catastrophic event. Mm. So until something happens that... More you know, so than the credit bureau releasing 143 sure. mi so what happens, million complete identities onto the dark web? What happens if <laughs> some program is out there and it shuts down all of Chase's servers where you no longer have... All or the air traffic control system or something with public down. safety cat cast. Right. If someone goes to try to get money out and they see a zero balance and it happens to millions of people at the same time, that... Yeah. would have an effect. It's that level of awareness, but that's not just with consumers. I think that's with companies. That's with everything across the board. Say you sign on with a monitoring company for identity theft monitoring or whatever. Mm -hmm. People, when they sign on to these monitoring companies, they basically, they, they don't worry about their security anymore. They figure the company's gonna take care of it. But that's not the case. That is not the case. We have to get to the point where we understand that, that even though we have help from companies that may have good security features, that doesn't mean that our job of protecting ourselves and our family is over. It still is out there. We still have to be proactive with that. How do, you, how do we get to that? I honestly don't know. Yeah. I honestly don't. Right. So, Doug, I really want to thank you for talking with me about this. It means a lot to me, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, and what you're doing means a lot to us. I mean, you're a unique voice in this, having been in the literally the dark web, <laughs> literally, and invented one of the first applications of the dark web, and to come forward and to warn people like you're doing is extraordinarily important. Well, again, thank you, yeah. and keep up the good work. Great. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Please tell your friends about us, rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.